Now we're reading again in uh, the Gospel according to John, chapter 1, and if you're using the church Bible, it's on page 1063, page 1063 of the church Bible. Our uh, good friends from Annapolis, uh, not to be confused with Minneapolis, will be astonished to have learned that our minister knows of the Cox sisters, very well-known singers, and he will be even more astonished to learn that I actually know who they are, and I think they come from Louisiana. Don't ask me how I know that. And let us turn to important things. John chapter 1, and this evening we'll read the first uh, 13 verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not mastered it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we began this little series a good number of weeks ago, now I compared the prologue to John's gospel, the first 18 verses in the gospel, to an overture in an opera or in a great symphony. And that first night when we began this, and I intended to go through the whole of the prologue, I realized that what had been put, as it were, on the podium before me was not the score for an overture, but the score for an entire symphony. And so, uh, these verses in John chapter 1 have been uh, turned for us from an overture that we would go through quickly to a symphony that we are going through Uh, as uh, most of us realize, rather slowly. It is a beautiful passage. It opens in verse 1 by taking us into the mystery of God the Trinity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was face-to-face with God. The Word was face-to-face with God, 
and was himself God. And then after a magnificent exposition of the identity and coming of this word, John ends the prologue by saying, no one has ever seen God. So we begin, the word was face to face with God. And now about ourselves, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, the word who is face to face with God, has come to those who have never seen God, and He has made Him known. And we've noticed thus far in the opening uh, section here, the opening movement, that John is working chronologically, as it were. He takes us into the mystery of eternity. He moves down a level, as it were, into the work of the Word or the Logos as the creator of all things. And then he tells us that the one who is the creator of all things is also the one who, through that creation, illumines all people. The world is luminous with the revelation of God's character. Uh, Everything that has been created, including human beings, have, as it were, stamped into their being a little uh, indication that they have been made by God. And John understands that this is denied. Uh, He's living in a world that, as he will go on to say, doesn't accept the Christian gospel. But while this is denied, he's arguing uh, this very obvious truth for the Christian. The reason it is denied is not because it's not there, but because people don't see it. People don't recognize it. And they assume, as we all tend to do, what we see is actually what is there. And if we don't see it, it isn't there. Give an illustration that uh, came to mind recently in another context. Uh, When we were living in Glasgow, I got off the, the local train one day that I sometimes got into and out of the city center where our church was. As I got to the station, I got off the train, and 20 paces in front of me, I saw our daughter. I moved hurriedly up to her, and I said to her when I caught up with her, Ruth, I didn't know that you were on the train. She said to me, very calmly, I know, Dad. You walked straight down the corridor of the train, you looked into my face, and you walked straight on my own daughter, my own daughter. And the biblical perspective is this is actually the situation of fallen men and women. The reality is staring us in the face. The light is all around us illumining the creative character of the Word of God, the Logos of God, the Son of God, who is the instrument of all creation. And we assume the evidence is not clear when, in fact, John is teaching us we are in the darkness. It isn't that the evidence is unclear. 
it is that our vision is blurred, and as uh, he will indicate later on in the gospel, we are by nature, through our sinfulness, those who have become blind. And as he's expounded this for us, there, there has come this little intermezzo, as it were, in the symphony, where he introduces John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the last and the greatest of the prophets of the Old Testament era, the one who stands on the mountaintop of Old Testament revelation and points his finger to Jesus and says, we have been waiting for him throughout the centuries, but this is the Lamb of God who will really take away our sin. And John is giving us a little indication, just in case we haven't quite grasped it yet, that the Word of God, who was face to face with God, is actually our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he begins the second movement. And John is a very interesting cast of mind. You'll see this if you uh, read carefully the book of Revelation or John's first letter. Um, John tends to go uh, round and round and round themes. Actually, it's the way the book of Revelation is structured. He goes round and round and round and keeps coming back to some great conflict until eventually he begins to explain this is the final conflict. Uh, it's rather like going up a spiral staircase. You go round and round and higher and higher, and you see deeper and deeper. And you see John doing this here, uh, so that when he comes to the beginning of this second movement, as it were, he, he goes back to what he had said in the first movement. He'd spoken about the life that was the light of men. And now he takes us back to the life that was the light of men the true light which gives light to everyone, and now he's, he's going to help us to see even more deeply. The true light that we've already noticed gives light to everyone is now, he says, coming into the world. And he tells us here two things, basically. He tells us the light, the source of the light that has given illumination in creation, is now coming into the world. He is the one to whom John the Baptist was sent as a forerunner, as a finger, as a pointer to say, there he is. And he tells us, as we would expect also, something about, so how do we respond? What is it that has happened? And what has been the response to it? The light that has been shining, the source of all illumination, has now come into the world that He illumined, and His coming precipitates certain responses. And He surveys for us a number of responses that there were and are to the coming of Jesus Christ into the world as the light of the world. So, let's try and unpack these two themes that he's dealing with here. First of all, the coming of the light into the world, and then secondly, 
the responses that were made to the light once it had come into the world. And you notice the language he uses here. He says, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was then coming into the world. What does he mean by the true light? Why does he call our Lord Jesus the true light? Remember the passages that uh, David cited from the second half of Isaiah this morning about Israel as the light of the world? Jesus is described by John here as the true light over against the light that failed. God sent Israel to, as it were, be the bearer of the light of His revelation to the whole world that sat in darkness, but that light failed. And now, by contrast, John is saying Jesus is the true light that does not fail. Remember how later on in John 8 verse 12, I am the light of the world. If anyone follows me, he will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Now, that wasn't true of Israel, as we saw in Romans chapter 2 in David's exposition. It was the very thing that was not true of Israel. They were called to be the light of the world, and they failed. They themselves were in darkness, and so they could not point to the light. And so, Jesus is the light of the, the world, the true light, as John calls Him, by contrast against the failed light. He's also the true light by contrast with the reflected light. Uh, the Old Testament teaches us that the heavens declare the glory of God. The psalmist tells us there's nowhere you can go without encountering the revelation of God. But that revelation, that light, is a reflected light. It's like the light of the moon reflecting the light of the sun. It isn't the light. The Word is the light. But everything that has been created through the light is a reflection of the light. It's not a false light but it's not the ultimate light. And then John speaks about Jesus as the true light for a third reason, that He is the true light, not set over against the false and failing light, not sent over against the reflected light, but set over against all the preliminary light. Uh, and this is a theme in John's gospel. Remember how Jesus will later say, uh, Moses gave, you, gave your father's manna in the wilderness, but I am the true manna sent down from heaven. That manna was just a preliminary feeding. It was a kind of symbolic feeding. It was meant to turn them from the bread that supplied their needs in the wilderness wanderings to the God who would supply their deepest needs. And later on in John 15, I am the true vine. God had created Israel to be 
his vine as a kind of picture before the incarnation of what God intended to do and to give through the coming of His Son, Jesus Christ. And they were simply pictures. They were simply preliminaries. And all of the prophets who pointed forwards to Christ, John the Baptist, the last of them who pointed forwards to Christ, they were lights. They were lights often shining in a dark place but they were just preliminary lights. Remember how the opening verses of Hebrews put it in many different ways, fragmentary ways. God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but now He's spoken in a new, final, different way in His Son. That's exactly what John is saying here when he says that it's the true light who has come into the world, he is saying, this is the one from whom all other light that shines upon the character of God is reflected. This is the one who will not fail you. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And this is the consummation all the little lights, the candles that have been shining, eh, this, is the, this is the true, the final, the full light. This is one who in Himself is light. Remember how the Scriptures are able to say God is light. It's not just that He gives light, but that He actually in this wonderful way is light. And so you see what he's saying. He is saying, he is saying that the light towards which all other divine revelation was pointing, sometimes failing to point, that light has now come. The one who, through these reflected lights, illumined everybody. Uh, this is, this is the teaching that we were seeing in, in David's exposition of Romans chapter 1, that, that whatever, whatever the people we know say, they cannot escape from the revelation of God. It is both around them and it shines into them. It's around them because everything that's been made reveals the character of God, as Paul says, and we ourselves are made as His image bearers. We, we cannot escape. We're in exactly the situation of the psalmist in Psalm 139. Men and women say, if I take the wings of the morning and fly to the uttermost parts of the earth at the speed of light, the, then I will escape Him. And there's this dramatic picture, as it were, of someone uh, flying through the cosmos at the speed of light, at that phenomenal speed. And the moment he lands, what should he encounter? But the revelation of God. There is no escape from the revelation of God. But now John is saying something tremendously dramatic. He's saying now the source of that light, not just the reflectors of the light or the pointers to the light 
or the little lamps that said, we are just, as it were, indications of the light. But the light itself, the light giver, the true light, was now coming into the world. It's a staggering statement when you think about it. Because what he is really saying is that the the light that gives life, that is to say, the light who ultimately is the source, not only of our existence, but of our supply and our joy and our fulfillment, was actually coming into the world. In other words, he is saying the most dramatic moment in all history is about to unfold as John points to Jesus as he will later on in chapter 1 and say, this is the one. He, He couldn't make a higher claim for Jesus. And then you think of the fact, and, and there is an echo of John 1, 1 in, uh, later on in John's gospel in, in the upper room, just as Jesus, uh, we are told, lay in the bosom of the Father, John lay in the bosom of Jesus in the upper room at the Last Supper. Um, so, this is one who knew him intimately. This is one who knew him well enough to describe himself as the disciple Jesus loved. This is one who had the deepest personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. Not only so, but this is an individual who has been schooled from infancy in Jewish monotheism. This is one who has been schooled in the notion that God does not share His glory with another. And he is saying, the one who created all things, the one who illumines all things, the one whose light gives life because without light there is no life, the one who satisfies, the one for whom we were created, the one in whose presence we are intended to live and move and have our being. He he has, as it were, broken into our darkness. And here he is. No one has ever seen God. You do not see light. You see things in the light of light. But now that light has come into the world in a a visible form. And in that visible form, we not only see everything more clearly, Everything begins to fit into place, not least as uh, some of the, the fine writers of the late 19th and 20th century pointed out, even the things that don't seem to fit, fit in the light of His coming. And He's here to be known. And fascinatingly, so much of John's gospel right through to the end is going to be about individuals coming to know him, engaging with him. Yes, there are, there are marvelous things happen in John's gospel, 
but John, uh, in distinction from the other gospel writers, has a kind of almost leisurely approach to the incidents that take place in Jesus' life. You know, Mark's gospel, everything happens immediately. And, and that word immediately, um, which is, I think, sometimes missed out in the NIV, is there in Mark's Greek text again, 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 again. Everything's happening immediately. But John, um, well, Mark was young, John was old. Uh, John gives us these leisurely long chapters to say to us, look what happened when people came into the light. And you would almost expect that the next appropriate thing to say would be, let me tell you how the world was transformed when the light came into the world. But he goes on to tell us there were different reactions. The coming of the light into the world precipitated a variety of different reactions, and he mentions three of them. He says, although he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet first of all, the world did not know him. That is to say, the world did not recognize who he was. Because, as he's already taught us, and he'll go on to teach us again and again in John's gospel, although I doubt very much that we'll go through John's gospel now, he'll tell us that they didn't recognize him because they were in the darkness. And because they were in the darkness, that their minds were confused they couldn't see straight. They couldn't think straight because they wouldn't recognize him. Um, remember that passage towards the end of uh, C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle where Lucy uh, sees the, the dwarfs in a, in a stable and, and they're pathetic. Um, they are not with Aslan. That's the point. And so they're in kind of darkness. And Lucy says to Aslan uh, tearfully, Is there nothing? can you do nothing for them? And Aslan, kind of Harry Potter-like, you know, creates everything you would think you would want, a feast of things. And the dwarfs can't taste it. This is, you know, what rubbish is this that we're eating? Um, you know, this is the kind of thing you expect to find in a stable. But the stable's in their minds. The darkness is in their minds. And Lewis makes this very striking comment where he says this. He says, you see, they will not let us help them. They will not let us help them, said Aslan. Their prison is in their minds. Yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. That's good, isn't it? That's where so many of the people we know are. They are so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out, will not be taken out. And so they resist the, they resist the light. It shines. Christ shines gloriously. How do you resist the light? 
well, you just need to throw the name Jesus the Savior into a conversation today, or Jesus the only Savior, or maybe even just Jesus, to provoke the most astonishing reactions. If you say Buddha, if Buddha's your thing, I'm, I'm fine with that. If you say Confucius, well, fine with Confucius. If you say Muhammad, even if you say the Dalai Lama, you know, the Dalai Lama is speaking in, I think, Montreal later on in this year, in the arena that is used by the Montreal Canadiens, the great Canadian, or one of the great Canadian ice hockey teams. The arena holds about 30,000 people. The tickets cost between 70 and 40 pounds. 30,000 people, even at 40 pounds. Dalai Lama, what a great spiritual leader. What a great spiritual leader, people think. But Jesus, anger, determination, resistance. Amazing, isn't it? Absolutely amazing. Yet, yet none of those hold a candle to the Lord Jesus. None of those hold a candle to the Lord Jesus. You know, just you know, go down through the line, teaching, self-identification, transformation of people's lives, universality of influence. Isn't it one of the great things about being a Christian that you can take the wings of the morning and go to the uttermost parts of the earth, and if you find yourself landing next to a Christian brother or sister, it doesn't take long. Even if you can't speak one another's language, you can pull out a leather-covered back book, you recognize one another as brothers and sisters, and there is a, there's, a, there's a contact, there's a, there's a sense how foolish, how incredible it is that people would think that Christianity is Western. The light of the world has come. But do you remember how it's later on? This is very John, isn't it? I mean, this is, this is the overture, even if it's become a bit of a symphony. He throws out things in the overture that he'll pick up later on. You remember how he puts it? He says, Christ is the light, but men loved the darkness. They weren't just in the darkness, but they loved the darkness. So, that's uh, one of the responses. There's another response which is like unto the first response, but in a way it's even more tragic, says John. He he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And that will be the story of his gospel. It's another theme thrown out, and you see it again and again and again. There are those who come to the Lord Jesus, but over and over again, until eventually the, the religious leaders of the people are shaking their fists in the face of Pontius Pilate and like mad dogs are crying out for Jesus to be crucified. And he's crucified. 
because his own people wouldn't receive him. And of course, their sin is repeated, not because of their ethnic identity, but because of the nature of sinful humanity. That's what we do, isn't it? That's what what people do. The, The name of Jesus, they push him as far as possible out of their lives. As in another context, Hebrews says, they they crucify to themselves all over again the Son of God. But, he says, and it's a relief that he says that you want to say, thank God that John got to this. But, he says, now look at what he says in verse 12, to all who did receive him. How did, how did they receive him? By believing in his name, by the name, of course, is the identity. By believing that he was the light of the world, that whoever would follow him would not walk in darkness but have the light of life. By believing that he was the word of God, that he was the he was, as it were, the ultimate explanation of the rationality of the universe. And there is no other explanation for the rationality of the universe, incidentally. It's a very striking thing. Great scientists and philosophers of our times who talk to one another, who work things out mathematically, who engage in their experiments, who explore the marvels of the cosmos at the the foundation of everything is the assumption that it's possible to think reasonably about this world without any explanation of why this should be so. The reason there is a reasonable order to reality is because it was created by the Logos. And John is saying that those who receive him, who believe in his name, this is what he does. This is not the only thing he does, but this is the great thing he does. He gave them the right to become the children of God. And you see what he's, what he's hinting at here. He's hinting at the fact that without Christ, we're like orphans in the universe. And as I say, you see, you see this among the great thinkers. They think as those who are orphans, and they're, they're struggling as orphans would struggle to to find some reality that would make sense of their apparently alienated lives. And, and the greatest of them are always doing this. They're, they're wanting to get back to something that would give stability to reality. Just as an orphan would naturally, would naturally want to know, who am I really? What are my roots, really? I mean, is it, whatever you think of it, it's understandable, isn't it, that, that, uh, that a child who has been adopted into the very best of homes, and this sometimes as, as adopted children grow into adulthood, can become a real crisis in the family. Uh, they may or may not come to their adoptive parents and say, I really want to know who my real parents were or are. 
because you want to know that you belong somewhere. And you see, at the end of the day, if you're a secular atheistic philosopher or or scientist or even just sensible thinker, you realize that since you're just a bunch of chemical, electrochemical reactions, at the end of the day, there's not even really such a thing as the self. There's just these physical, electrochemical reactions taking place. I mean, how it is that we think this is a reasonable universe when we're, you know, when we're just a bunch of chemical reactions is, is almost fathomless. But you see, this is his point, isn't it? The darkness refuses to receive the light. It would prefer the darkness. Men loved the darkness. To me, this is, this is the most tragic and in some ways the most astonishing thing that you would prefer a presupposition that will lead you nowhere and even bring you to question the sanity of your own identity in order to resist the light that would mean that you are no longer the center of your universe, but He is. When this is on offer in the gospel to as many as received him. I mean, think where he began this. He began this in the mysteries of eternity. And what he's going to say is that through Jesus Christ is coming into the world, his shining the light of the gospel upon us. What he does is come now, he says, and I will make you one of the children of God with all the privileges. Any of you graduate recently? Uh, you know, they, I mean, some places they say it in Latin, but uh, perhaps nowadays they say it in English. And they raise the question, I've always wanted to put my hand up at graduations and say, is there anyone here who can answer my question? You receive all the rights and privileges of having this degree. And I don't suppose there's anyone in the room who knows what the rights and privileges of having the degree actually are. I would say, what are my rights and privileges with this degree? And nobody knows. And John is saying, you can have all the rights and privileges of being a child of God. And how, you know, it's not only in the light of the gospel we see why it is that the things that don't fit don't fit, but in the light of the gospel we we see, not least in our own generation, how the blessings of the gospel fit the alienations of the human soul in the early 21st century, not least in the Western world, where youngsters are aching to belong, where for all the billions, if not trillions of dollars that are spent in the Western world, on persuading young people to have a good self-image, the statistics all indicate that it's all having the reverse effect. And that more and more young people feel themselves to be alienated. And in the midst of all the social media, they've got less friends. In the midst of all the glossy magazines, remember... You remember when you were a 12-year-old girl and you were fighting with your brother for the dandy or the bino? It's not like that any longer. 
It's an endless flow of magazines about the beautiful people. I actually, some of you be surprised, I follow the beautiful people a little. Because the thing that struck me years ago is actually how unbeautiful their, their lives actually are. When you pursue the small print, how dysfunctional their relationships have been, how tragic their lives have been, so that everybody knows it's a really, really, and it's commented on that this couple lasted together for 15 years in whatever it was, you know, in the, the great world of the, the beautiful people. And there wouldn't be so many asterisks in the interviews if they were really beautiful. And they're lost, absolutely lost in an endless world of wealth and fame. And here to all of us, the gospel is saying, through Jesus Christ, you become a child of God. You sit at the Father's table. You can call the creator of the universe your loving heavenly Father. You know, when Paul talks about this, he thinks about adoption and being sons and getting an inheritance. Because, of course, in that world, up to, remember Pride and Prejudice? Up to that world, only sons inherit it. And so he talks about being adopted so that all of us, male and female, become sons of God and we inherit the privileges. John speaks about being born anew, being born into God's family. And he is interested not so much in the inheritance as he is in the new dispositions that creates, that enables us to call him Father. And in the transformation of life it produces, it produces in us the family likenesses, the family characteristics. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, think about how different we all are. Just in this room, how incredibly different we all are. And yet, if we're Christians, how much the same we are. Totally different, but the same father, the same brothers and sisters, the same elder brother, the same privileges, the same family which warts and all is a glorious and beautiful and international and history-long and eternity-lasting family. So that here you are with the light of the world, the true light coming and shining on your life, and you discover at last you belong. But years ago, and it was a conference in Florida, and I went out for coffee with one of the other speakers, and a lady who was at the conference came over and spoke to us, and she'd had a fairly dysfunctional earlier life. And then she said she had come to faith in Jesus Christ. And I'll never forget the very simple way in which she described the experience of that. She said, I felt loved for the first time in my life. Well, this is our privilege, and not least today, it's also our message, because we live in a world in which endless numbers of our fellow citizens 
have actually never felt loved. And at the end of the day, so long as you're running from the light, you never can feel loved because true love is always found in the true light who brings light into our darkened lives. Well, that's the second movement. And God willing, we'll go on. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, what a magnificent symphony this is, all packed together into a little overture. How marvelous is your grace. How wonderfully it meets us just exactly where we have our deepest needs because of our sin. How astonishing to us that the one who created all things should enter the world that he created. How marvelous that you enabled John to write in such a way that he still hasn't mentioned the name of Jesus. But it's so obvious to us that he couldn't be speaking about anybody else. Oh, we pray. We pray if we don't yet know you that you will shine brightly into our hearts, that you will bring us to this new birth that enables us to trust in the Lord Jesus. And we pray that as we come to know him who is the light of the world, that we may know that however tough life may be, we will never, ever, ever have to walk in complete darkness because he is with us and will never leave us and never, ever forsake us. Oh, Father, thank you for the light, your Son, the Word, the one who is face to face with you. Thank you that you sent him into the world to come face to face with us so that we might turn from the darkness and see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and through him be brought into your presence and astonish ourselves by saying, Abba, Father. Oh, help us to live as your children through this week, we pray, and bless all we seek to do as we live for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now we're going to finish by